0: Alright, right now as we get started, I want you in your mind to fix an image or a portrait of how you perceive Satan to be. Alright, so just right now in your thinking, what is that uh, image you have of Satan? Now, probably it doesn't take very long. Most of us have grown up with some image and it's kind of grown over the course of time, so you probably have something. Now, here is the question laced into that question. Does the image you have bear striking marks such as profoundly handsome, compassionate, focused, strong, compelling, a draw, a leader, somebody that everybody wants to be around, somebody that everybody would trust, somebody where everybody says, man, I would like to really be like that? Is that your image? Does your image advance love, read a Bible, go to church, encourage heaven, warn of works, decry dogma, and elevate authenticity? See, if your image does not house those things, then I will challenge you and let you know that you do not have a very accurate image of our enemy. Because those descriptions I just gave are perhaps the more accurate descriptions of how we should see our enemy as the New Testament describes him, as we understand him and how he operates. See, a lot of times we think about Satan and we think, well, that's the guy that has a pentagram. That's the guy that has an upside down cross. That's the guy that sports a swastika. That's the guy that is so blatantly evil and dark and hideous that you could spot him a mile away. And the reality is, you know what, sometimes he uses those markers, but more often Often than not, he uses this very domesticated, very familiar, very soothing, very calming image to do his most damage. He is the unsuspecting enemy that we rarely ever see coming, and that's the way he likes it. He likes it when we don't realize. He likes it when we don't notice. He likes it when, you know what, it's just, it's off our radar. He loves to be that master of disguise. And that's why we have to be aware. Because of all of the markets that Satan most consumes his time with, Of all the demographics, he can pour the majority of his energies into the demographic and the group that preoccupies the majority of his creative thinking is right here. You, the church, consume more of Satan's creative energies than anybody else on the planet. And here's why. I'll give you a couple of reasons. First of all is this. Before you come to Christ or I come to Christ, before people are saved by the good news of Jesus, uh, they are born in a state of sin. They grow up in a state of sin. And in that state of sin, the Bible says that the God of this world, Satan, blinds the eyes of those who don't believe. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So when we're born, we're automatically born in a state where we are blinded by the enemy. And because that's our natural default, man, he just, it's like the current's already going. We just flow in the current. He just, you know, he doesn't have to do much to maintain the fact that we're unsaved. He just has to kind of keep us blinded, but it's easy because that's the current we're in. In fact, we learned back in Ephesians chapter 2 that he is the prince of the power of the air that works in the sons of disobedience, which we once were. So again, if our disposition is against God, our disposition is alienation and sinful, man, again, it's like the, the car's already moving, so it doesn't take much to push it. And that's the majority of the world. So while he will use 10,000 ideologies and 10 million different idols to keep that kind of that momentum going in the world, it doesn't really glean the majority of his energies. See, you and I, the church, we really absorb the majority of his energies because we know something the world doesn't know. We've come to see something the world is yet to see. We've experienced a freedom that they know nothing of. And because of that, he knows that if we go out there with passion and boldness and commitment and we really believe the truth, we'll do damage. And so, he looks at the church and says, you are my greatest threat. You are my greatest threat. Because I operate in spite, I hate God, I hate the gospel, I hate all that it represents and all that it stands for, and if the church gets excited and mobilized and it moves, it's a threat. Because we have authority. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about we have this authority to pull down strongholds, right, and he knows that. So he says, you are my greatest threat, and because of that, you are his chief target. Above all other targets, you are the chief target. This is why we learn in Ephesians 6 that he constantly volleys arrows at the church. He's constantly firing away with schemes designed to weaken us. It's why Peter warns he's a lion that prowls around to devour These are very destructive postures because you are a threat and therefore you are his target. See, this morning is a little bit intro to the series and then a little bit the actual first sermon he loves to preach. But I think it's important that we understand this because we have to understand what he's gunning for. He's not gunning for you to reject God necessarily. He's fine with that. He's gunning for us to just want to ride the bench. To stay out of the game, to say, ah, man, look at that, I want to ride some pine and not worry about what it means to be a threat. He would love that. So he's constantly looking for ways to do that, to accomplish the goal. So he's looking for ways to be like, "All right, how do I take their faith and make it boring? To make it so boring, in fact, that it lacks the look of transformation. He loves boring faith. Or maybe it's not boring, maybe it's just bland faith. That we as individuals would have a faith so bland that it lacks the power of inspiration. Nobody looks and says, wow, I wish I had that. Maybe it's a faith that he wants to look broken, and it looks so broken that it lacks all sense of hope for salvation. Nobody would look at our life and say, wow, God can restore you to wholeness. Instead, they would look and go, man, that guy's just perpetually broken without hope. Or maybe Satan wants us to be so belligerent with our faith that nobody would look and say, you know what, that's the message of restoration that that I'm seeking. I want to be rekindled to God. See, what he loves is to make it boring, bland, broken, belligerent. He wants to do little subtle things that cause us to not be terribly excited or terribly dangerous or terribly useful. See, that's his motivation, and so he assaults Us as God's church, not with swords and spears in a literal sense. He uses the most profound weapon there is. He uses the tongue. He uses the pen. He uses messages and ideas and thoughts to deal with us. In fact, I would make it real simple and say, more than even worrying about how we live, which is sometimes what we think, well, Satan wants to cause me to sin in the way that I conduct my life. And I say, that's true. But but more deeply, if you drill it down more, what he wants to affect is how you think. Because how you think is how you live. And so to change how you live, he wants to change how you think. And to change how you think, he has to go a little bit deeper. He has to go to the foundation of how we think as Christians, which is what we believe. And what we believe is what we call in the church, doctrine. Now, that word doctrine freaks some people out instantly. Like, oh, here it comes. Heavy, big words, Christianese, dull. Oh my gosh, I should have brought a pillow. He's talking doctrine. Right? I mean, I get it. Right? I get it. But see, that's the game he wants to play. This is the first uh, little deposit he wants to make. The first time bomb he drops into the church is this time bomb that says, uh, Doctrine isn't that big a deal. Does it really matter? Is it that serious, right? And 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 that's what he wants us to start thinking about. Yeah, is it really that big a deal? Is it that serious? Yeah, I know it's important, but it is dull, it is academic, it isn't terribly practical. Now, I, I'm not going to defend every aspect of, of that in the sense that I would agree that sometimes doctrine is dull. And it is academic, and it is filled with Christian ease. And sometimes people love doctrine more than they love doing what doctrine tells them to do. And that's not good. But just because sometimes that's true, that doesn't mean that our attitude toward the idea of what we believe, our doctrine should be, uh, you know what, it's not as important as our practice. Because I would defend, even die for the reality, that what we believe will drive what we do, and if we believe wrong, it will drive wrong action. If we believe right, it will drive wrong right action. That's kind of a foundational belief to all of this. And the enemy knows this, and so I would say what he loves to do is he likes to get under the surface and he likes to deal with what we believe in these subtle little ways. He doesn't always go from the top down, right? Top down is where he says, all right, those are the leaders, I'm going to get the leaders, and if I get the leaders, uh, it'll crumble from the top down. He tried this in the early days of the church. He thought, man, here's the best way to do it. I will deal with Jesus. I crush the leader. Everything comes toppling down. Didn't work. Had the opposite effect. Then Satan went after the leaders of the church, the apostles. He thought, top-down destruction. If I wipe out the apostles, the church will die. Well, what happens? He starts stomping out the fire of the apostles, but it just spread the ashes, and it spurred on more fire. So he realized early on, top-down isn't always effective. It creates martyrs, which then creates courage, which then creates the spread of the gospel and transform lives. Uh, Maybe there's another strategy. And so the other strategy that he will use is uh, a bottom-up approach. And the bottom-up approach is, again, just chisel away little by little what they believe. Just transform their doctrines little by little by little, and eventually it collapses. And in fact, a great case study for this is what I would see in Europe, right? For a thousand years, Europe had a thriving church. I'm not going to argue whether the church was always good or bad in that, but certainly the church was powerful in Europe. There was good seasons and bad seasons. And when there was a bad season of the thriving church, God would raise up prophets to speak truth and get the church back on course. And for a thousand years, what Satan would do with that big expanse of the church was try to top down, get it, get the pope, get the leader, get the new prophet. But it never could thwart the church. And so for a thousand years, the church was strong because he used the top down destruction method and it didn't work. So then the 17th century rolls around and goes, man, i got to go bottom up. So the enlightenment moves in. And what happens is that all these people in the church start going, well, is this doctrine true? And is this doctrine true? And is this idea right? And maybe this means this. And the church that stood strong for a thousand years, where the majority of people were a part of the church, is now the continent. Where 2% of Europeans attend church regularly. 2%. He didn't have to do it through some top-down annihilation. He did it bottom-up enlightenment. Just change a little idea here, change a little idea there, challenge these thoughts. It comes crumbling down. And see, the reality is, we shouldn't just go, eh, really, that won't happen here. I think it has a high potential to happen in the United States, just as it happened there, because we're starting to do the same things all the time. We're forgetting how critical the foundation really is, and protecting the foundation. And In fact, it's easy to do it, I think, because if you think about foundations, they're not the most thrilling things in the world. How many people have ever actually built a house? I don't mean with your own hands, but you were paying to have it built, and you were going out and watching the progression. So, a a number of you. Now, here's how this always happens. People go, yes, we're going to build a house, and they buy the land, and they're all excited, and they stand on the land, and they look at their view, or their lack of view, and they're They're like, but it's mine. And then the first day they break ground and everybody's excited. Woo, we're breaking ground. This is awesome. And everybody loves the breaking ground day. It is funny. My dad owned a construction company and I saw this many times where people would go out on the first day where the foundation was poured and that is the letdown day. It totally is the letdown day because they're like, foundation's in. They get there and they get out of the car like, huh? Because it's just ugly gray. It's just sort of cold They even look and they go It looks smaller than it's supposed to be Right? It's what they all do They all do that Right? Nobody says Ah, the foundation is the sexiest part of my house Nobody Nobody like brings their friends over This whole big expanse And you don't rip up the carpet Look at this foundation (laughs) Woo! You know? You don't do that there's a reason you don't do that, because again, you don't really think about it, but it's critical. I was driving across the 90 the other day, and I was looking, going into Mercer Island at those big houses off to the left. I'm like three stories, huge yachts out front. The last thing I thought about was the foundation, but without that, man, these things are just sliding into the water. Foundation is critical. And for us, the foundation is what we believe. Even as a country, our country has doctrines that shape how we do things, why we do things, how we carry ourselves as Americans. Our doctrine that's the foundation is the Constitution, right? And that does shape us. That First Amendment shapes the disposition of our country. The Second Amendment shapes the disposition of our country. These things shape how we live, how we act, how we function. Go to a different country that does not have the same doctrine, it functions different. Its cultural attitudes are different. Why? Because doctrine shapes. Now listen, we don't wake up every morning and read the Constitution. Maybe two of you do, and that's great. Most of us don't. Many of us have never even read the Constitution, but every day you live in the context of an environment that that's its doctrine, and it holds it together. What we believe shapes how we live. In fact, I was reading an article here recently. Pastor Scott gave it to me, and it was an article tracking uh, young adults who claim to be spiritual Versus young adults who claim to be religious. And and the actual um, research for this was asking the question, which group is more likely to commit crimes? And they found that those spiritual people were far more likely to commit crimes than religious people. And the reason, they said, is because religious people ultimately, at the core of their religion, have a code or a creed that is loftier than themselves. It stands above them, and it sits underneath them, and it holds them together. But spiritual people are just like, man, I'm just living by Braille, man. I just got my foot on the road and feeling the bumps, and hopefully I figure it out. And and so because of that, they have less uh, creed to live by, and they live differently, a little bit more unshackled, right? So I make this argument to say doctrine matters because that's what the Bible tells us. And I have to say that because, again, even in the church, as a pastor, I hear it so often that doctrine isn't, I mean, yeah, it's important, but really, is it as much as what we do? And I have to keep pushing that if it isn't important, eventually we change what we do. And we don't do the right things in the right ways. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says in verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, and it says first for doctrine. Right? From Scripture, from the Bible, what we get is our doctrine, the foundation, what we believe. And that then drives things like what we give reproof to, what we give correction regarding, and how we train others in righteousness. And this all happens so that the man and woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There is a progression The word gives doctrine, doctrine gives direction, direction shows how we live. This is why Paul told Timothy, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. They're intermixed. We can't say, ah, doctrine, whatever, as long as I'm living faithfully and sincere and I'm sincere to my faith, that's what's critical. No, what is equally critical is what the substance of our faith is. In fact, in Titus, Paul writes to this young church planner. And he says, "All right, here's what I want you to do I want you to set the church in order And I want you to establish elders And not just any kind of elders They have to have a certain character, certain caliber Certain quality, certain home, certain life And they must be able to teach sound doctrine And refute those who err Two things Teach sound doctrine, refute those who err And then for the rest of the book he says Because here's why If doctrine gets sideways He says, first of all, it destroys families Pretty practical suddenly We go from this lofty what we believe to suddenly, if not, it destroys families. And it destroys homes. That's chapter 1. He says in chapter 2, men don't know how to be men, and women don't know how to be women, and husbands don't know how to be husbands, and wives don't know how to be wives, and you don't know how to interact with the church, and you don't know your own spiritual fidelity, and you don't know how to interact with culture at large. It all falls apart. If we don't base what we do on what we believe. Right? So, again, I say repeatedly... Doctrine matters. Now, why do I make a big stink about this? Why? Well, if Satan was looking and said, what's my best bet to to weaken the church, to really infiltrate it and mess with it, I think he would look and say, what I need to do is I need to grab a Bible, I need to sport their attire, I need to learn their lingo, I need to preach some sermons. I need to preach sermons that aren't dramatically off-kilter. Some I will, but some I just need little subtle ones, these little ticking time bombs. And I'll, I'll keep doing these little ticking time bomb sermons in such a way that eventually, if I'm slow and methodical and patient enough, and they're just whimsical and loose and uneducated enough, that combination will weaken that Christian generation and the next one will be worse. That's why I use my case study of Europe as the example. He just slowly and methodically chip, chip, chip chip, chipped, and eventually two percent of people in Europe go to church on a regular basis. Right? That's his methodology, that's his plan. And he does it in such an interesting way, right? He does it through questions and assumptions and speculations. He does it through additions and omissions and extrapolations and novelty and curiosity and sympathy. And he does it even through imagination. But ultimately he's doing it betting on our human-centeredness. Just betting on the fact that we are so self-centered as a people that uh, we'll, we'll slowly begin to walk down those roads and 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 so what he does in this context is he just starts hanging pegs all right so he just hangs these various pegs at different points or he identifies them even he'll be like oh that you know that that idea will work and that idea will work and that idea will," and he just kind of sits on them for a while right isn't always super overt or obvious or anything else he just kind of gets these pegs in place And then he kind of starts to ratchet them together, as we're going to see. But it just starts in this. In fact, we see his first sermon. He kind of does this in a very accelerated way. Right? Because, again, like I said, he preaches sermons. And some of these sermons are recorded in the Bible, which is great. We can actually read the sermons Satan preaches. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Genesis chapter 3, you can do so, because that's his first sermon. His very first sermon is preached right there in the first book of the Bible, right? It's so obvious and so clear. Now, let me remind you about what's going on in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God, who is love, creates. And I don't want you to lock that in. God, who is love, creates. First John 4, 8, God is love, right? So it's a Bible verse. We claim it. We protect it. We believe it. God is love. And the God, who is love, he creates. And he creates in his love And he creates for his love And he creates everything that we know And at the pinnacle of that He creates the human race And he creates the human race So that he will be loved by them As he loves them, right? So that's the whole design So we're created in God's love For God's love To love God as God loves us That's the dynamic God takes us, puts us in a garden Says everything is yours You can hang out You can eat You can play You can frolic I don't know if he said frolic I don't even know why I'm using the word But they could do that Because it's Eden. Eden is the frolicky place, I guess, right? So they all frolic in Eden. It's all great. He says, there's just one thing I'm asking you to not do. Do not eat of the fruit of this one tree. That's it. That's it. Just one thing. Every other tree, yours. Every environment, yours. And you're going to spread this. Eden's going to spread. Eden is like this this, um, staging point for the plan of God. It's going to envelop the world, right? The whole love of God envelops the world through the staging point of Eden. That's the plan. Just don't do this one thing. Don't eat of this tree. Why did God even put the tree there, if they're told not to eat of it? I, I, it's speculation. I give you that. But I would say it creates the tension of what love is about. Love is making the active choice, All right? And the tree kind of creates the tension to make the active choice. If I eat of the tree, I don't love God. If I don't eat of the tree and I eat of everything else and enjoy God and His creation, I love God. So that's the plan. But then Genesis chapter three, you see the sermon. It says now the serpent. Was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So some people look at this and go, oh, it's a talking snake. Kinda. Alright. If you fast forward to Revelation chapter 12, we see that the serpent of old was the devil. Right? So people are like, no, this is just a snake, it isn't the devil. Yeah, you fast forward to the last book and it tells you it's the devil. It's always good when you read to the end, it helps, alright? So read to the end. Okay. So you read to the end, it's the devil. So the devil shows up in Eden. And here's what he does. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Just that little phrase is revealing, right? Because in the same way that we might say, does doctrine really matter? And what doctrine is, is, well, what God said. In the same way, what he's lacing this in is, well, did what God say really matter? Is doctrine important? Is truth important? Is commandment important? Did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice he's quoting scripture here. Right? He's just quoting chapter 2. So if you think, no, 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 Satan would never quote the Bible. Oh, he loves to quote the Bible. He's read it more than any of us. He's got his annual reading plan too. Right? He's read it chronologically, canonical order. He's read it all backwards, forwards, upside down. whatever. He's read it a bunch. So he quotes the Bible even, which is great. How nice to know that Satan quotes Scripture. But again, the question is, does it really matter? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, here's what's fascinating about what happens. Here's Satan. He has kind of a sinister motive. Ask the question, Does it really matter what God said? But here's what God said. And then the woman takes it and doesn't just re-quote what God said. She then does what I warned about. She extrapolates a little bit. She adds a little bit. She changes it up a little bit. So God didn't say, you can't touch it. God just said, don't eat of it. Right? God never said, and don't touch it. He just said, just don't eat of it. I guess, presumably, Adam and Eve could have went up to that tree and just rubbed up against it, you know, like whatever, hugged it, or they could have just, don't eat. But now the woman says, Oh, we can't eat, we can't touch, we can't do, everything else. So now things are getting extrapolated. The foundation is beginning to get chipped away at. Satan knows what he's doing. Right? And she's giving into it. It says in verse 4 then But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Right? So God says, Don't eat of that, or you will surely die. The serpent says, Did God really say these things. The woman says, well, God said this, plus here's some other things that I'm just extrapolating. And then the enemy comes in with his favorite sermon. You ready for his favorite sermon? His favorite sermon is don't really worry. His favorite sermon, the undercurrent that is implied in the text is subtle, but it's this. Don't worry about God because God won't actually follow through with such a statement. Don't worry about God because God won't hold His stated priorities higher than you as a person. Don't worry about God to do something so void of tolerance because I know that God, He's actually, in truth, not this holy, rigid God, but a loving God. God is a loving God. And he wouldn't do that to you. Satan's number one favorite sermon in all the Bible is, God is a loving God. Now, right now, some of you are planning your week this next week, and you're saying, uh, first on the checklist, find a new church. Um, (laughs) Second, email Matt, tell him he's a wingnut, all right? You're like, wait a minute. God's a loving God. What do you mean God's not a loving God? All right? It doesn't seem right. Well, tell you what. Stick with me for about 10 minutes. Um, I won't be done, but stick with me that long. Um, and then after that, you can take the mental off-ramp. It's fine with me. I just want to build a case for about 10 minutes, and then from there, if you want to stick with me, that's fantastic. Now, here's what I want to say. Words mean things. Right? Words mean things, but not all words mean the same things or in the same way. For example, take the word turkey. What does turkey mean? Some of you are like some dweeb I know. He's a turkey, right? Totally. Others, you're like, oh, tasty bird. And others, you'll say, three strikes in bowling. And I'll be like, if you said that, you have no life and you're on a bowling team, but you knew that. So, um, but all are true. All are true. Those are all the ways you can use turkey, right? Or there's some words that don't mean the same thing depending on inflection, like the word dude, right? Like, a matter of fact, this morning, it was funny, I, I, I stopped off into the restroom uh, just before the service. I'm not, I'm not, it's not oversharing, I promise, don't worry. But, um, so I stopped into the restroom, and I saw this guy standing at the sink, and I looked at him like, I know this guy, and it's a good old friend of mine from Spokane, totally surprised me, didn't know he was coming, right? Rob Schubor. And so I see this and I'm like, dude, right? And I gave him a big hug in the bathroom, which is weird. Um, like... <laughs> thanking Jesus that nobody else walked in the bathroom while I'm hugging a man, all right? So, um, but I'm like, dude, right? And that dude means I'm excited, right? And if I'm somewhere else, though, and I got a buddy of mine, and like he face plants, I'm be like, ooh, dude, right? So dude means something different, right? Totally. Inflection changes how we understand words. And it's the same thing. When Satan says God is a loving God, he doesn't mean loving in the way that we might understand it, but it's the word he's going to use, it's the concept he's going to run with. But when he says God is a loving God, what he's actually saying is God's a tolerant God. God's a loving God. What I mean by that is God is a tolerant God. Tolerance is love. Satan's got a favorite verse for this too. Satan loves verses. Here's his favorite verse. Luke 6:37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. You know how many people quote that? They don't have a clue where it's at. But their message is simple. My God is a loving God. My God wouldn't judge. My God wouldn't condemn. It's unloving to condemn. It's unloving to judge, right? So that's the idea. And see, this is how he begins to operate, right? So I go back to our our pigs here. So here's how he does it. it, Here's what's weird. He's going to weave a lie, but a lot of times the way he weaves the lie is through these strands of things that are true from certain points of view. Or or maybe may not be true, but it's a half-truth or it's a contorted truth, and so we'll have a tendency to run with it. So here's how it works. The first one is God is love. And we go, yeah, that's totally true. God is love. Um, And then God exercises love by being loving. And we go, well, that may be true. I mean, God is love, and God would exercise love by being loving. And then love, well, love is unconditional and go well that's true love is an unconditional love and then it goes well the essence of unconditional love would be tolerance because at the heart of unconditional would be tolerance and then tolerance at its core really removes judgment i mean how can you be tolerant but be judgmental at the same time so tolerance has to remove judgment and god did say that judgment's wrong according to luke chapter six and so judgment is wrong based on that and uh with that we'd say God really says this because to 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 judge would be intolerant and that wouldn't be good. And since intolerance is unloving and God is loving, God is tolerant and would never judge. Right? It, it, in in logic they call these logical fallacies where at some point it breaks down and the whole image wouldn't be accurate, but but we sort of get sucked into these webs where he just keeps stringing together in such a way that any individual thing on its own may stand okay, but weave together in such a way with such a tone that it brings out this idea that says, you know what, God just, he's so loving, he doesn't ever, ever, ever do anything other than just understand. Well, that's the lie that the enemy wants to teach. And again, you see it in all sorts of ways. I've had many friends in my life that will say to me, when we talk about faith, they'll say, well, my God... My God wouldn't send anybody to hell. My God would not judge people based on what they do. My God is not so close-minded as to say one way is the only way. What they're saying is this web right here. They've kind of gotten sucked into the web where they say, "My God is a loving God." Because all of these connections ultimately lead to this truth. That's why my God is different. As a pastor, I've seen it in the church. Where I'll, I'll deal with people uh, Maybe an individual having an affair and, and, and they'll say, yeah, you know, I'm having the affair I'm probably not going to stop I know you guys are going to like, take action against me But God still loves me And I'm not debating the merits of whether God still loves them What I'm debating is their definition of what they think love is That love doesn't care That love is tolerant That love blows it off See, here's the truth About tolerance Ready? Tolerance is the opposite of love. Tolerance is the extreme opposite of love. People say hate is the opposite of love, and I'd say, man, I wish hate was the opposite of love. Right? It's not. It's not, because in hate there's still passion. Tolerance, on the other hand, is indifference. And indifference is absent of conviction, and it's absent of passion. That's tolerance. Tolerance is indifference. It's absent of passion and it's absent of conviction. That is the essence of tolerance. And that's what God, or that's what Satan wants us to believe about God. That when God looks at the human race, God is absent of passion and absent of conviction when it comes to what we do. He's just tolerant. And it's weird. Even in our culture, tolerance is now considered the highest reaches of of social value and ethic. Like, man, if you're a really tolerant person, you are by extension a loving person. The groups that claim to be the most loving are the ones that claim to be the most tolerant. And they see tolerance as love. This is Satan's ultimate lie. Because let's put it in a different context. Let's take my kids. I've got my kids sitting in the front row. Um, I, I have my youngest, uh, he's 13, his name's Boz, we call him Boz, that's his nickname, and so, um, if Boz comes to me and it's like, hey old man, give me the keys to the car. And I'm like, oh yeah, sure man, no problem, here you go. You know I'm 13, yeah, but hey, I'm behind you bro, you know, matter of fact, here's a six pack while you're at it, you know, um, cause I, I know you wanna go party, you know what I mean, you might go picking up the ladies, so, you know, the back seat folds down, um, so, too far, huh? All right, so. You know, illustrations always work better when you actually think them out in advance, so. But just go ahead, you know what I mean? I might be home, might not be home. Hey, no problem, man. I just love you, bro. No problem. All right? I know that's an extreme example, but you think about it. Who would say, that is the most loving dad on the planet? Who would say that the more tolerant I am as a parent would make me a more loving parent? Now, now that's some of the mythology today. Some of the mythology are the best parents are the ones that they're their kid's friend and they're not their parent and they're super hyper-tolerant and that's love. And I go, that's hate because it's indifference. It's I don't care either way what you do or what you don't do, how you live or how you don't live, the decisions you make or the decisions you don't make. And frankly, I would say that is not love. See, love would be passionate. Love would be convicted but tolerance is passionless and it's convictionless it's uh, I'm not bothered whatsoever and I don't think much of it whatsoever I mean when I started dating Ellen uh, who would say uh, you know uh, like the best form of trying to woo a woman would be tolerance in other words passionless and convictionless right first date where do you want to go I don't care what do you want to do Doesn't doesn't matter to me How do I look? Good, I didn't like this dress Oh, me neither then I don't know You know, I mean like Nobody would say like Ooh, that guy's oozing love I'd just be oozing tolerance Right? Just indecisive Whatever's fine Right? But see, love is not that Love is not tolerance I go back to love is commitment Love is affection Almost everybody would affirm that on paper The true love is not indifferent. True love is committed, sold out, believes in, passionate about, invests into. That's true love. And see, that's the kind of love we want. We don't want a love that detaches itself from its stated values once the conditions change. We don't want that love. That's not the love we swear at the altar when we get married. We don't say, well, this love is conditioned on how everything else goes. We say, I'm promising a love today that will not waver under the conditions. That's true love. Why? Because it's passion and commitment. It's not indifference. It's not whatever comes, however it comes, whatever that means, and maybe I'll stick around and maybe I won't, just depends. But that's indifference, that's tolerance. It's not sold out. In fact, I thought about this this week and I thought, man, how weird. We we, we live in a country that is wealthier than any country on the face of the planet's ever really been we have all kinds of things that we can do all kinds of you know options to entertain us and people feel more unloved more detached more unwanted and more broken than ever before i'm like how is that how is that when we have a time where families can be healthier than they ever have been in human history more books and videos and workshops to help marriages be happy and kids be healthy and everything else why is that everybody or so many people seem miserable I'm like, well, no wonder. We've replaced love as the ultimate value for tolerance as the ultimate value, and everybody's living sort of tolerant. No passion, no commitment, just kind of, hey, I'm not judgmental. I don't want to make too many calls. I don't want to come across as unloving, so I'm just kind of going with the flow. Satan loves it when we think tolerance is love, but it breaks God's heart. It breaks God's heart. Now, I know some people, like my sweet wife, is saying right now, but Romans chapter 2 says God is tolerant toward us and being patient and waiting us to turn from our sins. And I would say yes, because again, not all words mean the same thing in the same way. When Satan uses tolerant, he's meaning it to say God is so loving, he's tolerant, he blows it off. Right, so he overlooks our offenses. When God uses the word tolerant, what he's talking about is being long-suffering toward our offenses, God doesn't say, no big deal, no sweat, no harm, no foul. What God says is, I will go a long time, and I will restrain my holiness, but I am suffering in the process. See, God's tolerance is long-suffering. Satan's tolerance is this mythology that he calls love, where God doesn't care. God very much cares. And in our lives, when we deal with those who don't know Jesus, we are called to be long-suffering. We're not called to overlook their sin or their condition. We're called to be long-suffering in the context of that, which is why we care about them and spend time with them and invest into them. But we don't look and say, it's not a big deal how they live, what they do, how they think, and their their belief matrix. We say, it very much matters, but I'm long-suffering because I want to make the investment and I want to make a difference, right? That's the attitude and that's the heart. And so what we have to realize is that Satan's sermon is countered by affirming not that God is loving, but that God is love. Not that God is loving, but that God is love. Again, 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There is no ability to love, to experience love, to extend true love as the Creator defined it apart from knowing God. You must know God to know love. What Satan tries to do all the time is say, you don't really have have to need to know God to know love. You just got to be loving, tolerant, call it done. God says, no, no, no. You got to know me to know love. And understand, this text here, 1 John 4, 8, isn't just describing a disposition of God, right? Like us, uh, you know, we may feel love, we may be committed in love, but it's sort of a disposition of ours. For God, it is his essence. Love is his very being, all right? So, so you've got to kind of lock that in, who God is, is love. In fact, I have this graphic. It is, uh, hands down, the worst graphic table ever made by a computer, um, I dug deep to do it that poorly, all right? So, um, but I think it captures well what the essence of understanding God's love is. Because you have to go back to if God is love, he therefore defines it, directs it, all of those things, right? So here's the thing you have to understand about love. First is this, who God is, God loves. Who God is, God loves. I know that seems a little bit weird, even a little bit narcissistic, but he's God, he's allowed to. Because it's not that he's being a narcissist, he's saying the very essence of my being is the very fabric of this high-value love. And so because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, he spent all of eternity internally loving himself, Father loving the Son, Son loving the Spirit, Spirit loving the Father, and all around, right? So God loves who he is, who God is, God loves. Then the second truth is what God is, God loves, So he loves who he is, and he loves what he is. He's holy, he's different, he's set apart, he's uncommon, he's pure, he's perfect, he's all of those things. And so God is committed to that and loves that. And then third, why God made, he loves. Why God made, he loves. And why he made was for this worshipful purpose. In other words, he didn't make human beings because he says, you know what, I just so badly want to be loved. He didn't do that. What he did is he says, you know what, I so love what I love. I love myself, I love my Father, the Father, Son, and the Spirit all mixing around. I love what makes me up, which is my holiness, and therefore I'm going to create in my love others who love what I love. They worship what I worship because the Father worships the Son. The Son worships the Spirit. The Spirit worships the Father and the Son. It is this intermixing relationship. So it's like we're brought into this to love what they love. That's our purpose and design, right? That's why we exist. Now, I say all of that to say, here's the most important feature of this. Before we were, all of these ideas were true. Before we were, this was what love was. All of it. Right? We're the last comers in a cycle of love. Therefore, if we're the last ones to the table and the last ones to the dance, we play by the rules of the dance. We operate by the rules of the table. So it's not that just God inherently says, because you're people, that's good enough. It's, I made people to love what I love. All right? What this means, then, is three things. First of all, God defines love. And he defines love in what we call doctrine. Right? He defines love by doctrine. Then God decrees love, and he decrees love by saying, this is what you do love, and this is what you don't love. Don't love darkness, love light. Don't love lies, love the truth. Right? So he decrees what we are to love and not love, and that's commandments. And then third, he directs how we are to execute that love. That's application. right? And so he tells us in the Word, here's how you love me. Here's how you love your spouse. Here's how you love your kids. Here's how you love Christians. Here's how you love non-Christians. Here's how you love your enemies. He directs all those different forms of how we love. But here's the key. We don't love in every one of those contexts in the same way. There are different forms of love for each one of those categories. Right? How I love God is first and foremost, which is different than how I love my children. Sometimes I invert those. That's my sin. Right? How I love a Christian is different than how I love a non-Christian, especially in regard to sin. When a non-Christian is in a life of sin, I love them by having proximity to them and sharing the big idea that Jesus has died for them. When there's a Christian who is in sin and is an unrepentant sin, I don't love them by being around them a lot. The Bible says I love them by putting them under discipline. That's my love toward them. God loves whom he disciplines. So the love toward a sinning believer who will not repent is different than the love toward a sinning non-believer who doesn't understand repentance yet. Right. So God directs how we love, Right. because he directs what we love, And he directs it through doctrine, which is how we love him, right? And I go back to all of that was in place before we were here. All of that was in place before we were here. And that is why God won't suddenly say, well, because of number three, because I love what I made, um, I will blow off number one or number two for the sake of three, I will not take my holiness as seriously I will just let them go And and no big deal I'll be so loving I'm just tolerant And I blow off their offenses uh, I know number two says I can't do that But three is more important than two Or three is more important than one uh, My love of myself So I'll just invalidate one To fulfill number three By just blowing it off See tolerance would do that Tolerance is say a no big deal No offense, no foul Yeah, I'll take the hit Easy Just won't No penalties paid But see that wouldn't be that wouldn't be love It would just be indifference That's not what God does God does something only true love would do Only true love would do In fact if you ever um, Take a class on like script writing Or story writing or, Or that kind of thing There's a scenario they will teach you in these things It's a simple scenario It's called save the girl or save the city Right? You'll see this if you watch The Matrix or Batman or Iron Man or anything else. There's these story arcs where there's this moment where the villain has taken the girl of the hero and put her in one building, and then he's taken the mayor of the city and he's put him in another building, and then the hero is told, you have a choice, the bomb's going to go off at equal time, and you have to decide, do you save the girl or do you save the city? Right? And, and, and it's always like, what is he going to do, what is he going to do, and how is he going to do it? Well, the truest hero does both. Saves the girl and saves the city. And in the same way, what God does because he's love is he saves the girl and he saves the city. God says, I'm going to save the city of my kingdom by upholding number one and number two. I'm going to keep loving who I am. I'm going to love my disposition. I'm going to love my person, but not at the cost of loving them and reclaiming them. And so I will save the girl." As much as I saved the city. And so what God does is He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to lower the standard of holiness. What God instead says, I'm going to go down among them. I'm going to maintain holiness. And I'm going to take their offenses, their sin, their hatred, their detest of me, their unwillingness to follow me and serve me. I'm going to take all of that offense and I'm going to heap it on myself and I'm going to be impaled to a cross and I will punish myself to free them from their offense. Because I am love. Instead of saying, I'm indifferent, it doesn't matter. He says, it matters so much, and I care so much, I will give myself completely for them, and I will take their offense on me. See, that, my friends, is love. Love doesn't just say, hey, don't sweat it. True love says, I love what I love. I love my vows. I love my commitment. I will not break my vows or break my commitment, but I will suffer and serve and give so that you can be a part of what you were originally designed to always be a part of that you left for a season. See, that's what makes the gospel of God so powerful. Because in love and for love, he holds himself as supreme. He doesn't waver but then with love and through love, he lowers himself and does what we could not do. He received our punishment, took our wrath, punished himself. So Satan preaches, God is so uh, so loving, he overlooks your sin. But God proclaims, I am love, and so much so, I personally paid the price for your sin. There's a big difference between those two. There's a big difference One costs nothing The other costs Everything Satan doesn't want that message of love proclaimed He wants tolerance proclaimed as the image of love But it's not love It's not love What God does, what God expects, who God is That is love In fact in 1 John 4 It said God is love Then it goes on It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Satan would say, this is love. That God loved us. Stop. He wouldn't want to say anything about the Son coming to take our sin. God goes a step further and says, no, no, this is true love. True love is that I took your sin. I love holiness. I love myself. I love you enough to take it for you. See, there's love. Love says I love you enough not just to blow off your sin, but to free you, but to free you, and not just in the position, in the practice. Revelation chapter one says, "Grace you in peace from Him who was and is and is to come." That is the Father and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that is the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's real love. Real love says, I want you free. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to be cleansed and be restored. That's love. Nobody's loving anybody when we say, I don't care how you turn out. That's not love. Love says, I deeply care how you turn out, and I will invest myself fully so that you turn out the way that you were meant to. And from that it says He made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. He transforms us, He doesn't just free us from our sins, He gives us His righteousness. So here's my question today two questions. First is this Which God do you seek? Which God do you seek? Do you seek the loving, tolerant God, or do you seek the God who is love? Because there's a difference. If you seek the God who is love, you want to be in a mutual exchange of a loving relationship. In other words, you want to pour in in your worship as God pours into you his strength and love, right? So you have relationships. So every day you're waking up going, I want a relationship with God because I seek the God who is love. If you wake up every day and the last thing on your mind Is seeking God, the last thing in your life is considering God You're just kind of doing the God thing So you don't have to face the hell thing Then you might want a tolerant God More than a loving God You want a God that doesn't pay attention More than a God who does pay attention You want a God who doesn't really watch As opposed to a God who is Watching all the time with loving Father eyes So my first question is Which God do you seek? The tolerant God? Or the God who is love. Because that's what matters. second question I ask is for those who may not know Jesus in this room, and and, and it's not really a question as much as probably it's a statement. The statement is, um, this love of God that I'm talking about is only as useful as your desire to receive it. In other words, that God loved you so much that he came and gave and did, still doesn't change your situation nor eternity. Unless you go, I receive what God has done. I receive that love. In fact, I close with the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved that he gave, but you must believe to really receive what that love is all about. Goes on to say, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God so loves you that he gave. But you only experience that love when you receive. Let's pray together. Jesus. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that your love is far more potent than the mythology of love that filters through our world, the love that is loose, is ultimately uncommitted and passionless, that says, don't be bothered by me, and I won't be bothered by you, and we'll call that love. I pray that we will have a deep sense of love for one another and a deep sense of love for you that is filled with passion and filled with commitment and doesn't waver from our standards but holds to our standards even in the face when we might want to waver. Help us to understand what that means. Help us to love as you've called us to love in your name.